Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Last week, as a church, we celebrated our 15th anniversary, and that's a wonderful blessing. The second Sunday that we met for service 15 years ago, we started a series through the Gospel of Mark. And that second Sunday of our church gathering, we looked at the same account that we're going to be looking at today, 15 years later, which is the account of John the Baptist. It's a significant text, and it's timely, as we will be celebrating with two who will be baptized today, immediately following the service. I want to encourage you, uh, as we're thinking ahead to that, after the service is finished and we uh, take communion together and um, sing together, I want to encourage you, if you have kids in the um, classrooms, to go get them and then come back uh, for two reasons. We want our kids to um, see and celebrate and then begin to ask questions about baptism. Um, but we also uh, want our teachers to be able to celebrate that as well. And so if you have kids there, let them um, be relieved so that they can come and celebrate together. But if you would stand and follow along, we're going to look at um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 of Matthew. <clears throat> in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word, Lord. So grateful that you would entrust us with your holy word to lead us and guide us and challenge us, to grow us, to teach us that you are, that you reign, that you're worthy of all praise and honor and glory of our lives. We pray that you would bless our time. Thank you that we can gather like this and celebrate together even to today. We ask that you would be glorified through all of it in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. 
This is the uh, first text I ever preached in my life, 25 years ago. Um, I hope it's better today. <laughs> we just celebrated New Year's Day a week and a half ago. For many people, that brings a, a sense of newness, and so many will make resolutions for the new year, hoping to change things that they may not like or improve on things that they do like. Well, the text today is about change, but it's about change that we all need desperately. Change that is far more important and lasting than New Year's resolutions. It's an inward change that awakens and enlivens outward transformation. And as we work through the text, we'll be doing that by focusing on four points. The first is this, the message of change, and then the motivation for change, the maker of change, and the mission of change. The message of change. Verse 1 tells us in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And Matthew doesn't give us anything about Jesus' childhood or John's childhood. And really, the only thing we have about Jesus' childhood comes from Luke's gospel account. And it's very limited. When Matthew says, in those days, he's making a connection. He's connecting it to chapters 1 and 2, even though there's approximately 30 years that have passed between the two. It's a continuation of the story. John the Baptist comes as a messenger, a herald, and its significance. We need to remember the context here. You think about the very last words of the Old Testament. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, ends with these words in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God had announced through the prophet Malachi that he would send Elijah the prophet to announce the coming of the Lord. This Elijah would turn people back to one another and also bring an announcement of destruction. And after Malachi... There is 400 years of silence. 400 years without a word from the Lord. No prophets at all. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. And John, as Jesus confirms later, is a figure who in many ways parallels Elijah, a prophet calling the people back to God. So let's look at the person here before we look at the message that he brings. First, John came, we know from the text, prophesying boldly, just as it had been foretold. Matthew quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In ancient times, a herald would come to a town or city before a king arrived announcing the king's coming and making sure that everything was ready, making sure the road on which the king would travel was smooth and ready. 
And that's John's role in redemptive history. To make ready the paths for the king. The Messiah is coming and John is preparing people for his arrival. And not only is he prophesying boldly, but we see how he's living. He's living simply. Matthew tells us in verse 4 that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. You consider that in light of 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, describing Elijah this way. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. It says that John's food was locusts and wild honey. There's nothing at all elaborate or attractive about John the Baptist. And yet people came. And so what is the message of this one who comes so simply, resembling Elijah the prophet, whose role it is to prepare the way of the Lord? Or we might, we might say, what is the message of preparation for the Lord's coming? Verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is John's sermon. That's his message. In order to prepare people for the king, John comes preaching, repent. And so we ought to ask, if this is the message, what does it mean? What does repentance mean? What John is calling for involves not just a change of mind or thought, Biblical repentance involves confession, an acknowledgement that we have sinned and we do sin against God. But there's more than that. It's not simply confessing that we have and do sin. That's true, but that's not all that repentance is. Repentance involves sorrow over our sin. A true realization that we have sinned against a holy, righteous, and loving God will bring sorrow over what we have done, over our sin. And that's not sorrow over getting caught. We need to recognize the difference. No one likes to get caught. It's not just kids that don't like to get caught. We don't like to get caught. And when we are caught, we grieve. We're sorrowful. But that kind of sorrow is what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 7 as worldly grief. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief is a grief that comes from knowing that we have sinned against God. Whether we're caught or not. Worldly grief isn't necessarily sorrowful over our sin. Rather, it's simply embarrassed or sad that people know. So there's confession and there's sorrow, but there's more. When we speak of biblical repentance, repentance 
True repentance involves a turning away from sin to be converted or changed. It means true change that comes from acknowledging and grieving the sin we've committed and turning away from it. So this is the message of change. But what's the motivation for change? John preaches repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the motivation for change in John's preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That expression, the kingdom of heaven, is used 32 times in the book of Matthew. Other gospel writers use the expression kingdom of God. It's the same meaning. The kingdom of heaven is this, the rule and reign of God. And John is proclaiming that it was breaking into the world in a new way in the ministry of Jesus. And with the arrival of this kingdom comes two realities, and they are motivation for true change. First is this, salvation is here. Jesus has come. The King has come. And with His coming, with Him, is salvation. So it was announced, you should call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. It's why He's come. In John's Gospel, Jesus Himself says in chapter 3, Verses 17 and 18, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus came to this earth to save, to save all who would trust in Him. God's salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ. But that is not all that it means when John says the kingdom of God is here. Or the kingdom of God is at hand. Salvation is here, yes. But it also means that judgment is near. It's a day of judgment that's coming and just like salvation, it is centered around the person of Jesus, the one John proclaims. Look at verses 7 through 10. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now the Pharisees were a group connected to oral tradition or, or official interpretation of the Torah, the law. They were teachers of the law. They advocated a scrupulous observance of purity and piety, obedience to the law. They saw their role as building a fence around the law to, to help the common people in keeping it. 
The Sadducees were a party of the aristocrats consisting of many chief priests and upper class. They were strict observers of the law. Now, these two groups did not agree on everything. There were harsh disagreements on a number of things. But one area where they were on the same page was in their belief that they were right with God based on their Jewish heritage. In other words, they were safe from judgment simply because they were sons of Abraham. And John is making it clear in this text, this is not true. Calling people to be baptized as an expression of true repentance. Baptism wasn't common in Old Testament history leading up to the time of John the Baptist. The only people who were baptized were Gentiles who decided to become followers of Yahweh. Baptism was a way of saying, I am an outsider renouncing my former ways and embracing faith in the one true God, the God of Israel. You can imagine how astonishing it would be for people from Israel to be coming, as they are in this text, to be baptized. All of these people, Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region about the Jordan, going out to him, baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They're admitting that being Jewish is not enough. It did not guarantee them a right standing before God. To be baptized is to renounce your dependence on yourself and to acknowledge that there's nothing inherent in you or anyone that can save you. And so when these groups come, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, John makes it clear that their motives matter. Their motives matter in coming. John refers to them as a brood of vipers, saying that they're literally the offspring of serpents, that they're spreading poison with their tongues. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath and come for baptism when in fact you show no signs of repentance? That's what he's saying. It's important. Because the Bible teaches us that baptism is for those who are repentant. Those who show signs of repentance, not perfection, but repentance. And those religious leaders did not. And he warns them in verse 9, don't presume that your status before God was safe simply because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. Don't presume on that. The refusal to repent results in judgment regardless of your heritage, he's saying. And he's saying judgment is near. That expression, the axe, is at the root of the trees. You think about that. It relates to judgment. The wrath of God is the righteous anger of an all-holy, all-loving God toward sin. 
And John is saying, this is imminent. It's near. You think about the root of a tree. When the root of a tree is cut, the tree is destroyed. It's not coming back. It's gone forever. This should motivate us toward change, knowing that there is salvation in Christ. That text about God's judgment has been cared for in Christ, has been solved in Christ. That John's saying there's no hope in you. There's no hope in you, but there is hope. There's salvation in Christ and judgment for all those outside of Christ. And so John calls to the religious leaders, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit here referring to good works and good character. A life lived in response to repentance. And we ought to be reminded today, just as the Pharisees and Sadducees were, we are not saved because of our family heritage. Whatever that is, whether you were raised in the church or not, maybe your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were all churchgoers, they dragged you into church, they never missed a Sunday, that doesn't get you saved. Maybe you would say, I've been to church my whole life. I'm fine. John's saying that's not enough. Maybe you were baptized. Maybe you were baptized as an infant because your church, the church your family attended. Again, that doesn't save you. Baptism is a display of your repentance of sin, admitting that you are not righteous and that you need saved. It's a picture of death. Of death. You think of of what we're about to see in a little while. Being immersed in the water symbolizes a decisive turn from yourself and your way of life. That includes a dependence on family heritage And it says that you are relying on the mercy of God alone. If someone is put into the water and they're not let up out of the water, that's bad news. Right? That's the picture. It's death. It's a picture of death. Confession that there's nothing you could do to save yourself from sins, but Jesus did something. That brings us to the third point, the maker of change. In all of this, we dare not think that the act of baptism saves. It cannot. John is purposeful here in pointing to the hope of salvation. It's the king who rules the kingdom that is at hand, Jesus. The Savior is coming, and he is awesome, John is saying. Look what he says in verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. 
He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Savior is coming, John's saying. He's mightier than I am. He's far greater than I am. The one who is coming is infinitely more powerful, John's saying. He says he's not even worthy to carry his sandals. That's a very significant statement. The dirt on the feet was unclean. And so only non-Hebrew slaves took off or carried their master's sandals. So John is saying here, literally, he is not even worthy to be Jesus' slave. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here is salvation. It's not water baptism that saves. John does that. I'll be doing that later. That's powerless. But Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's referring to how we are immersed, just like in water baptism. We're immersed in the Holy Spirit when we are saved. And how it is this fire that purifies us. We can't do that ourselves. We can't do some act that makes us somehow worthy to be with Jesus forever, whether it's baptism or anything else. We need Jesus to purify us with fire, to immerse us in His Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The maker of change is Jesus, not us. We cannot do it ourselves. We cannot. For those of you who are here, probably all of you would say this. If you try to change in your own strength, you're going nowhere except for back to where you started. We need, we need transformation. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's a picture of the harvest. Final judgment. Winnowing fork would scoop up the grain and throw it in the air so that the wind would catch the lighter chaff and blow it away. The good wheat would be kept in the barn. Useless chaff would be burned. Notice that last part. With unquenchable fire. Sobering and fearful. It could go under our second point, the motivation for change, but it fits better here because what John is saying is also this, the only hope, the only hope of change has come. 
The maker of change is here, Jesus. And he can and will save you from this terrible fate if you will submit to him in faith, if you will trust in him alone for salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And he never turns away those who come to him in faith. And so what do we do with this? The message of change and the motivation for change and the maker of change. Fourth is the mission of change. If you don't know him, if you're trusting in yourself or your heritage or any other thing than Christ and his work on the cross to pay for your sin and make you new, then turn to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is an incredible truth. We all know who we are. We all know what we're like. We all know all of our thoughts and intentions and, and all of the things that go on in our mind, all the things that go on in our heart. But there's one who came in our place. And God made him, Jesus, to be sin, though he knew no sin, and punished him for that sin on the cross so that in him, if we trust in him, we become the righteousness of God. We don't earn the righteousness of God. We don't look like the righteousness of God. He just graces us that way. It's grace. For those of you who do know him, as a follower of this king, so loving and gracious, the one who rules and reigns in righteousness, how are you living to make his paths straight? Now, don't hear me wrong. He's not dependent on you or me for that. He's doing really well. He's the sovereign over all creation. But he blesses us. He gifts us with the privilege of living a life that points to him, a life that makes the gospel understandable and inviting. So are you making his path straight in the way that you live? Not as a Pharisee, but as a true and faithful servant. And that's not a call to perfection. It's a call to reflection. To reflect his grace and mercy and love. To be an ambassador of righteousness. To point to him who is coming and who is mightier than we are. To, the point, to point to the one who became sin for us the one who did what we could never do, the one who doesn't demand perfection and rule following, but faith and obedience and love for him, who makes a way for us to come, who makes a way for us to believe, 
who makes a way for us to obey, who makes a way for us to be with him forever. How are we reflecting that? We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper. First Corinthians chapter 13. Excuse me, First Corinthians chapter 11. I do, in, in the fo- verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry Another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying this symbolizes what happened to me. His body was broken. He was punished for our sins. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. His blood was poured out, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Christ accomplished all for us. And so as we take the bread and the cup, we do it in a way that is proclaiming what he's done and rejoicing in the grace that we've received. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's prepare our hearts for that as we pray and sing. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good. Lord, and what you do is good. Everything you do is good. You have displayed your grace most fully and your love most fully through Jesus who has come, who lived a perfect life on our behalf and died though innocent, on behalf of all those who would trust in him, so that whoever comes to you in faith, believing, trusting in you for salvation, will be saved. What a glorious truth that is, Lord. What a hopeful truth. We all know, Lord, we continue to sin and we struggle and we battle, and yet there's this one, Jesus, the maker of change, who is mightier than all of us, who is supreme over all things, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so it's in your name, Jesus, that we come and we trust and we remember, we take the bread and we take the cup together. And we pray that you'd bless that. 
Christ's name. Amen.